It's time to unmute menopause. Hello, and welcome back to Menopause Unmuted, a podcast series sponsored by Pfizer. Menopause is a major transition in life with many changes and a lot to learn. I'm your host, Mary Jane Mencken. I'm an obstetrician gynecologist and clinical professor at Yale University School of Medicine. The stories from the four fabulous women in season three raised some common health concerns for women in midlife. So today, we are bringing you the first of our bonus episodes, where I invite an expert to talk with me so that we can shine a light on a particular aspect of menopause that has come up in our episodes, and I also deal with a lot in my practice. Today, we're going to focus on a nourishing menopause, how good nutrition can help promote well-being, help strengthen our body image, and help protect our bones and heart. My guest today to focus on this topic is Dr. Jen Salib Huber. Hello, Jen. Hi, Mary Jane. Jen, could you please tell our listeners a bit about yourself and your work with nutrition? Yes, thanks. And thanks so much for having me. I'm really delighted to be here today and to be having this conversation with you. I'm a Canadian-trained registered dietitian and naturopathic doctor, and I'm currently living in the Netherlands, but I am Canadian, proudly. And I work primarily in the area of women's health, and especially around midlife. As a menopausal woman myself, who's in early menopause, I went into menopause at 44, I became really interested in the relationship between food and nutrition and how it could impact my own experience of being in this age and stage. And it really became the focus of my work about five years ago. Thanks, Jen. I wondered if we could start by asking a pretty broad question. Why is it a good idea for women to pay special attention to their diet during perimenopause and beyond? That is a really great question. And I always say that fundamentally, our nutrition needs don't actually change all that much. But it is a time of life when we start to notice the relationship between food and how we feel and how it affects how our body looks and feels. And there are a few hormonal changes that happen that really affect, I think, for many women, what they see on the outside, but also are starting to affect how they feel on the inside. So one of the main changes, as you know, is that as we get closer to that last period, our levels of estrogen that we have had for 20, 30, 40 years of our life really start to change and drop. They're on a roller coaster. So, you know, they don't go quietly and they don't go calmly out the door, but they're all over the place going up and down. One of the things that the estrogen changes lead to is what I call a redistribution of our assets. So where our body likes to be soft and round may look a lot different than it did when you were 20 or 30. And for many women, that can be a a disconcerting part of menopause, that what they see in the mirror isn't what they've seen reflected back to them for most of their adult life. And we also know that the the lowering of estrogen or the lower estrogen state that we're in in menopause affects how our body uses insulin and blood sugar. And that can also lead to changes in how our body looks, but can also have an impact on some of the, the more important health considerations as we go through this age and stage of life, primarily the increased risk of diabetes and heart disease that we really need to be thinking about a lot more as we get into menopause. 
you describe these things very similarly to the way I do. Sounds much more eloquent than the way I do it, but I just tell people it's a centripetal distribution. <laughs> it goes from <laughs> to the middle, straight to the middle, and that's what they're all concerned about. Yeah. Now, talking a little bit more about the weight issues, though, staying within a healthy weight range can lead to better health outcomes, Jen, but it isn't just about a number on the scale or maintaining a certain dress size, and I know you're a big advocate of that thought. Yeah. And this is really what I call kind of the passion part of my work is that for many women who get to midlife, and and I was one of them, I'd spent a lot of time trying to control the number on the scale. And all of my decisions about food and movement, if I'm being honest, were based on trying to control that number. And what we know is that, yes, it is harder to control that number as we get older, but also that weight isn't a proxy for health. And I think that that's such an important shift that women can really embrace as they get into their 40s and 50s and beyond so that more of their relationship with food becomes about supporting their health, about increasing their strength, about maintaining muscle, and for reasons really that are beyond the scale. Really kind of shifting your relationship with food to be based on how you want your body to function and not just how you want your body to look is one of the the mindset shifts, I think, that can help people to have a healthier relationship with food. Certainly very important. And indeed, one of the changes that I've noticed at our menopause meetings annually is that we've, of course, talked about osteopenia and osteoporosis for many, many years. But the trend is now to talk about sarcopenia. And for our listeners, sarco is muscles. So we're talking equally about sarcopenia as well as osteopenia. And that's really important. Absolutely. And sarcopenia is one of those things. It's a a medical term that many people don't know about. But I think that when we look to people who are older than we are, we can see that, you know, we become weaker as we get older, and it's much more difficult to build and maintain muscle. So that really should be the focus of, or at least I think should be the focus of how we move our bodies and what we eat and just how we're, we're playing the long game when it comes to nutrition. Jen, could you please talk a little more about protein? People wonder about amounts of protein, types of protein they should be consuming, particularly at the menopause transition. Protein is definitely a hot topic when it comes to menopause nutrition, and there is good reason to include it more often and to maybe pay a little bit more attention to it. But the data that we have about protein is that everybody needs to get a minimum amount. And there is also some data that in menopause and postmenopause, getting more than the minimum may be helpful at building and maintaining muscle. It may also be helpful in keeping blood sugar and, you know, in control and those kinds of things. I think it's important for people to realize that, yes, protein is absolutely important and including it at most meals is, I think, a very natural way for us to want to eat it. But I think a lot of people get really caught up in the numbers and how much and how often. And we don't really know exactly how much more we should have. So I like to use that add-in approach of just make sure that you're having regular amounts of protein, whether that be animal protein or plant-based protein. And, you know, try not to to skip on it is kind of a a good way. So maybe have a little extra if you're portioning out a piece of chicken or if you're adding shrimp to a salad, have a little bit extra. If you're going to have beans in a soup, add a little bit of extra. So again, focusing on that add-in instead of taking away. But protein is important because it does primarily help to build muscle. But more important than protein is actually eating enough because if we're not eating enough, which is, you know, something if, if someone is trying to be in a caloric deficit, your body will actually 
actually burn a lot of that protein for energy, meaning that it's not going where you want it to. So making sure that you're eating a balanced, nourished diet that has a little bit of an extra focus on protein, I think is a good way for people to think about it. Absolutely. I agree completely, Jen. And being proactive with what you eat may help manage some menopausal symptomatology. I've certainly had conversations with my patients over the years about hot flashes and alcohol, for example. Why is that? That's a great question. And the the data around alcohol and hot flashes can actually sometimes be mixed. But when you speak to women about their experience, and I'm also one of them, that even small amounts of alcohol seem to prompt hot flashes, make them worse, and especially those night sweats through the evening. And one of the the leading theories is that it's a vasodilator, of course, we know that. And anything that increases your skin's temperature is much more likely to contribute to hot flashes, which is why spicy foods, even just hot beverages, anything that makes your skin and body feel warm is likely to confuse the part of your brain that's trying to regulate temperature. So, Jen, can we now talk about some of the health issues that are particularly relevant about menopause? In episode two, we heard about Mary Beth's efforts to protect her bone health. And in episode three, Barbara, despite being extremely fit, suffered a very serious heart attack. What food choices can women be thinking about when it comes to our bones and our hearts? The good news is that a lot of the things that we can do to support our overall health will also help to contribute to heart health. But some of the more important nutritional influences on heart health, of course, are going to be the types of fat that we are eating. So when we're talking about fat, we're usually talking about either saturated fat, which we get from animal foods, or the unsaturated fats, which we get from plants and fish. And it's very clear in many decades of research that putting more emphasis on getting your fats from plants and fish over what you get from animals is going to help to reduce uh, your risk of heart disease, contribute to overall heart health, including lowering cholesterol and things like that. But that doesn't mean that saturated fats are bad. So of course, you know, cheese and eggs and meat can all be part of a heart healthy diet, but it's really about what we want to add in adding in fish more often, adding in nuts and seeds more often, and maybe placing a little bit less emphasis on having, you know, meat at all of our meals. The other component of heart health that is, you know, really being emphasized in the last 10 years or so is fiber. So we know that fiber, which is, you know, the indigestible carbohydrate that we get from most plants and also whole grains and and things like nuts and seeds, does seem to help to reduce the risk of heart disease, can help to balance blood sugar. So those are two of the more important food add-ins that I like to focus on. But we can also talk a little bit separately about omega-3 fats, which are the the type of fats that we get from fish, in particular cold water fatty fish like salmon and mackerel and herring. These are fats that have been associated with reduced risk of cardiovascular events and including them two to three times a week usually, you know, seems to be the right amount. And then people can always talk to their healthcare providers if they wanted to think about supplementing because some people don't love fish. So Jen, can we talk a little bit more specifically about bone health? Because I think most of our listeners do understand that bone loss is a major issue for postmenopausal women. And where do things like calcium, vitamin D, soy fit in for our listeners? Absolutely. So calcium and vitamin D have been the darlings of bone health for really probably the last 30 years. And we used to tell women that this was the most important thing to make sure they were getting enough calcium. And we used to think, well, more is better. So get as much as you can supplements, food, it's it's all doing good things. 
But what we've really learned in the last, you know, 10 years is that calcium and vitamin D are extremely important for building bone. And in those first, you know, 20, 30 years, you know, of our life, we need to be focused on building bone and getting enough calcium and vitamin D is critical to that process happening. But as we get into menopause and into our 40s and 50s and 60s, taking supplemental amounts of calcium and vitamin D isn't as strongly supported by the research anymore for helping to prevent fractures. So they're still important, don't get me wrong, and we do want to be including them and likely in food amounts. So whenever I'm talking about food, I really like to use that language of let's try it on because not everybody needs to do the same thing. And for some people, if they really don't enjoy something, you know, we don't want to tell them that they have to do it because then our toddler brain kicks in and kind of kicks up a stink and doesn't want to. Jen, we know that the food we eat has got to be one of the areas of health most plagued with misinformation. My favorite myth to bust in midlife is about carbohydrates. So many people have gotten many mixed messages about carbohydrates, but especially in midlife and the discussion around carbohydrates causing weight gain or causing diabetes or causing insulin resistance. And I think it's important to recognize that carbohydrates are actually considered an essential nutrient. Our brain and our red blood cells really function best when we are eating carbohydrates and they're getting their fuel from glucose. And so for people who are choosing lower carbohydrate diets, they may actually be you know, underperforming, so to speak, because we need those carbohydrates not only for energy production, but also to help to support mood. We know that carbohydrates contribute to serotonin production. There may also be a relationship with sleep and possibly serotonin and melatonin, but people really fear carbohydrates. So I always like people to know that the conversation around carbohydrates can be a bit nuanced in that some people do better with less, some people do better with more, but there's absolutely no reason to avoid them. And many, many, any reasons to include them. Jen, you've been talking about carbohydrates and have talked about simple carbs versus uh, complex carbohydrates. Can you explain to our uh, listeners exactly the differences between these two? Absolutely. So simple carbohydrates usually refer to carbohydrates that have short chains of sugars attached to them. So this might be what, you know, we tend to think of as white foods, but not exclusively. So this might be things like white rice or white bread or, you know, sugar, things like that. Um, But even if you look at something like, you know, fruit sugars, those would technically be classified as a simple carbohydrate just because of their chemical nature. Complex carbohydrates tend to be these long longer chains of of glucose molecules or sugar molecules that are strung together. It takes longer for our body to chop them off one at a time, so they're digested more slowly, and they tend to have a a more, you know, balanced effect on something like blood sugar, for example, if somebody is watching their blood sugar. But what I, you know, coming back to my add-in approach and, and what I like to talk about is that we can add something to a simple carbohydrate, we can add protein, we can add fiber, we can add fat to that, if that's a food that you enjoy and want to include. Thank you, Jen. You're listening to A Nourishing Menopause, the first of four bonus episodes to accompany season three of Menopause Unmuted. I'm your host, Mary Jane Minkin, and today I'm joined by registered dietitian and naturopathic doctor, Jen Salib Huber. You can listen to all our previous episodes and find more information at menopauseunmuted.com.
For this final section of our bonus episode, I'd like to talk about our attitude to food and how we eat because it has an impact on what we eat. I'm sure a lot of listeners will have heard the term intuitive eating without knowing really what it means. But there is a framework around the concept of intuitive eating. Jen, could you please explain? I'd love to, Mary Jane. Intuitive eating is a framework based on 10 principles that includes an anti-diet mentality that focuses on attunement, which is learning to tune into our hunger cues and our fullness cues. It helps us to pay attention to the different types of hunger. So are we experiencing physical hunger or emotional hunger or taste hunger? And it also emphasizes that body respect of working with your body instead of against it, moving for reasons other than just burning calories and really incorporating joyful movement. So I always say food matters, just maybe not in the way that you've been led to believe. And having a relationship with food that nourishes not just your health, but how you feel about your body is really important. It's terrific. Jen, could you also talk to me about body image and how assessing our relationship with food might contribute to a better body image? What we know about body image is that weight loss doesn't protect us from a negative body image. And the example that I use to illustrate this is most women who have, you know, tried to lose weight or pursued weight loss have probably found an older picture of themselves in a smaller body and looked back and thought, oh, why did I think there was anything wrong with me? But at the same time can recall feeling the exact same way that they do now. So we know that weight loss isn't the ticket to feeling better in our bodies. And so I like to describe it as how you feel about your body shouldn't be the determining factor of how you feel in your body. And the analogy that I like to use is that of a bus. And so if how you feel about your body, meaning your body image, is driving your self-esteem bus, if you have a bad body day, all of the other passengers get taken for a ride. Whereas if you have some resiliency and some flexibility in how you feel about your body because you trust your body to know when to eat and what to eat and when to be full and how to move, it becomes a lot more of a give and take relationship instead of a one way ticket. The the other thing is that we actually do have some data and some research from looking at women who score higher on the intuitive eating assessment scale, which is a validated tool that we use, that women who have higher, um, you know, who score higher on this intuitive eating assessment scale actually feel better about their bodies and in general just describe a more peaceful relationship with food. And at the end of the day, I think that's what all of us want is a peaceful relationship with food. Excellent. One other area that I know you're interested are the issues involved in eating as a sort of a social and and eating as a get together. Can you comment on them? Yeah. And one of the really interesting things about eating is that it's not just about the food. It's not just about the nutrition that we're getting from the food, the vitamins and the minerals. It's also the experience of eating and eating with people at a table has been shown to help kids to make, you know, want to eat more fruits and vegetables. We know that older people who eat together, you know, especially if they live alone are less likely to suffer nutrient deficiencies are more likely to be, uh, you know, well-nourished versus undernourished. So I think that we need to really place value on the act of eating together and not just the act of eating. Again, very well said. 
<laughs> and uh, of course, I, I do love the thought that about social eating actually being good for you. A nourishing meal with family and friends sounds like a pretty great element of self-care. With that in mind, Jen, I wonder if you could share an idea for an easy meal that listeners could make, perhaps to be shared with friends or family. Absolutely. And I will share this recipe, but one of my favorite, our family's favorite recipes is what we call tortilla soup. And I like it for uh, many reasons. One of them is that it can be cooked in a slow cooker or crock pot. So for busy days, it can be thrown in. It includes some chicken. So it's not completely vegetarian, but also includes things like black beans and kidney beans and is in a base of tomato sauce and, and tacos and or taco seasoning and lots of vegetables. So it's, it's a one pot meal, but then you can make it a little fun and customized by having lots of different toppings. So you can have guacamole or you can have tortilla chips, which is how my kids love to eat it. But it's just a nice way to have a meal that is, you know, can be cooked on a variety of schedules with, you know, lots of flexibility built in, but that generally is a taste that most people like and that can appeal to both the meat eaters and maybe people who are trying to eat more plant-based protein. Jen, that sounds terrific. And we are going to have the recipe in our show notes. So take a look for them there. Well, Dr. Jen Salib Huber, thank you so much for joining me today. I've really enjoyed our conversation, and I'm sure you've given plenty of food for thought to our listeners. Thank you so much, Mary Jane. I've loved talking with you. And thanks to you for listening to A Nourishing Menopause, a bonus episode that's part of Menopause Unmuted. I'll be back for more bonus episodes where I'll be talking to experts to bring you information about fitness, looking after your emotional well-being, and fostering a healthy and enjoyable sex life through menopause. There's more information in our show notes at menopauseunmuted.com, and if you have any questions about your own menopause, talk to your healthcare provider. That might be your OBGYN, primary care provider, nurse practitioner, or midwife. There are even designated menopause practitioners that a woman can visit if she needs more information. Special thanks to the Women's Health Team at Pfizer and to Studio Health for producing this series. Talk soon. This podcast is provided for educational purposes only and is not intended to replace discussions with a healthcare provider. Please speak with your healthcare provider regarding any health questions. The opinions expressed in this podcast are the opinions of the individuals recorded and not necessarily opinions endorsed by Pfizer. The healthcare practitioners appearing in this episode of Menopause Unmuted have been compensated by Pfizer. This podcast is only intended for residents of the United States. This podcast is powered by Pfizer.